Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. Uh, it's just me this week, there's no Bethan. We've tried to record this episode on three separate occasions now and every time we've recorded it we've encountered difficulties. So uh, we will be back to normal next week and thank you for your patience whilst you awaited this episode. I know it's coming to you a couple of days late but uh, yeah, I think the episode's been cursed so uh, here we go. Um, thanks also to our new Patreon supporters. We have Vicky Ann, Nicola White, Duncan Darlison, Bethany and Nicola Clark. Thank you so much for your support guys. I hope you're enjoying the bonus episodes and we've got an exclusive competition up for our Patreon supporters for this month. If you don't currently support the show through Patreon then please do have a think about it. Uh, Loads of exciting stuff going on over there and your support through that platform makes all the difference to us. Um, So yeah please do check us out. Thank you to Stuart Day this week. He got in touch through Facebook uh, with the suggestion for today's case. And it's a really interesting case. One that I remembered at the time, but one that I'd totally forgotten about. So you may be aware of it, but most likely you won't be. Um, So if you do have any case suggestions, please do get in touch in all the usual ways. Uh, Lots of you have done and we've got a big list with them on. So if we've not covered it yet, we will get to it. Today's episode takes us back to 2017 and to the northwest county of Cheshire, home to reality show The Real Housewives of Cheshire, Channel 4 soap opera Hollyoaks, and of course the world famous zoo, Chester Zoo. And it's an affluent county notable for its leafy villages and also its local red sandstone buildings. To the outside world, Darren and Leanne McKee had it all. Three gorgeous children under the age of 10, a happy marriage of 13 years and respected careers with Greater Manchester Police. Leanne worked two days a week as a detective constable for the Sexual Offences Unit and Darren had risen up the ranks to inspector with an impressive salary of £51,000. The family holidayed in the Algarve, did the weekly food shop at M&S and they had a mini countryman and an Audi parked on the driveway of their expensive home on Burford Close in the upmarket Cheshire suburb of Wilmslow. Darren was tall and athletic, a keen karate enthusiast and Leanne was petite at just five foot two with an enviable figure, luscious blonde locks and a passion for designer handbags. Friends described them as a lovely genuine couple who had the perfect family but as we know all too well on this show, appearances can be deceiving. Behind this facade of middle-class comfort lay a mountain of spiralling debt, so severe that just 11 days after moving into their dream family home, Leanne would lie dead on the kitchen floor. Four years previously, in 2013, the couple had moved from their small home in Sale, a sizeable town in Greater Manchester, to a larger house in the pretty village of Hale, just a few miles south. This was an upwards move for the aspirational couple and their young family, but to afford it, they had had to compromise. The house they'd purchased needed a lot of work, and as they set about turning it into their perfect family home, Money became tight and the couple spiralled into debt. Darren and Leanne both liked the finer things in life and when it came to renovating their home, only the very best would do. So over the following months, they spent tens of thousands of pounds on building works, all the while enjoying an enviable lifestyle. But it just wasn't sustainable. 
With credit card and loan companies refusing to advance any further borrowing to the couple, and with builders to pay, they had no option but to approach their parents for help. They had spent £50,000 on renovations, and they had also racked up a further £40,000 on credit cards at this point. So, together, both sets of parents paid the debts off, in the hope of giving the couple a fresh start. Darren had never been good with money. He had spent his entire adult life in debt. And while this should have been a fresh start for Darren and Leanne, it proved to be too easy a way out of their financial mess. And so, by 2016, their debts had spiralled once again. In the space of just two years, the couple had accumulated a further £90,000 in unsecured borrowing. Knowing they couldn't turn to their parents again, the couple debated whether to release equity from their home. With the extensive renovations they'd carried out, the house had gone up in value considerably. However, when the house was valued, they realised they could have their cake and eat it. They could sell up, pay off all of their debts and put a sizeable deposit down on an even larger home in a more upmarket corner of the northwest. And so, in September 2016, that's what they did. They sold the house in Hale and purchased a four-bed detached home in Wilmslow. Now, Wilmslow is one of the most sought-after places to live in in the UK after central London and it forms part of what is called the Cheshire Golden Triangle. The town's Aston Martin dealership there sells the highest number of Aston Martins in the UK and the area is filled with millionaires, footballers and soap stars. It's a great place to live, but it's expensive. So in order for the couple to buy in Wilmslow, they had had to compromise once again. They purchased the house in Burford Close for £435,000 and they put down a deposit of £135,000, so they were very heavily mortgaged. But the house was uninhabitable and needed extensive renovations. Consequently, the family moved into a rented property at a cost of £1,495 per month, while the work was being carried out. Despite the prospect of getting into debt once again, Leanne was clearly excited at creating her dream home. Indeed, on the 21st of March in 2017, she set up a home renovation Instagram account entitled Burford underscore home. In this still active account, you can see the progress of the renovations documented in 91 photos over a period of six months. And I suppose I'm being a bit unfair when I say the house was uninhabitable. You could have definitely moved in straight away, but it was very dated. And to be fair, it did need an awful lot of work doing in order to bring it into the 21st century. Looking at the initial photos, I would say it hadn't been touched for about 30 years. So think green carpets, those old school electric fireplaces, a bathroom the colour of bile, and you wouldn't be far wrong. But this account on Instagram is just so tragic. You can see Leanne's hopes and dreams for the perfect family home. Her excitement at sharing the progress with her friends and family and that building anticipation as they headed towards the move-in day. And I have to say, by the time the builders had finished with it, this was a stunning family home, complete with £3,600 worth of marble worktops in the kitchen. £6,000 worth of new windows and bifolding doors, sumptuous grey carpets and expensively decorated rooms. 
Leanne certainly had a great sense of style, and it showed. On the 15th of September in 2017, in one of the last photos to her Instagram account, Leanne put up a picture of a nearly finished kitchen with the caption, Tomorrow is move day. Lots to do and still so much painting to do. Our new sliding doors will be in on Monday and from Tuesday we are hoping no more workmen. 24 hours and I'll be sitting here drinking copious amounts of fizz. And Leanne was right, just 24 hours later the family had moved in. In a picture posted on the 16th of September, you can see a bottle of M&S Prosecco and a Domino's pizza box on a table in the kitchen. The same kitchen Leanne would lie dead in in just 11 days. Leanne captioned this post, We're in. The menu tonight is Domino's and Fizz. Leanne went on to add a further three posts over the coming days, the last one just 24 hours before she was brutally murdered. In that post, she captures a nearly finished house from the front driveway, and she captions a picture. The scaffolding is down and the skipper's gone and the render is on. It looks so untidy. And in a nod to the finishing touches that she was hoping to make over the coming days, weeks and months, she goes on to say, Garage doors need to be darker and the outside lights need to be put back on. Think the driveway will be a next year job, so a bit of tidying and sprucing up. Shutters are on order and in the meantime we have paper blinds covering half the windows and look like the clampets. Which I think is a reference to the Beverly Hillbillies, the famous film about a poor family who moved to Beverly Hills. Good film, not seen it for like 25 years. Um, And the account stops right there and it's frozen in time. There would be no further posts. This perfect family home would be forever tarnished and a family ripped apart. So I'm going to take you back a few weeks now to August 2017. The family had just returned from a lavish £6,000 holiday in Portugal. The sunshine break had been an opportunity for Darren in particular to forget about the financial mess that he'd gotten the family into once again. And I say Darren in particular because although Leanne did have expensive tastes, Darren ruled the roost when it came to the family finances, and Leanne was often left in the dark, usually until situations became so desperate that Darren had no choice but to let her in. Nevertheless, the break was just what they'd all needed. The renovations had been stressful, and entertaining three children over the summer holidays in a rainy Wilmslow had probably been no picnic either. When they returned to the UK, however, reality kicked in. A return to work and school for Leanne and the children, and a return to the financial mess for Darren. At the end of August, Darren and Leanne's joint account with HSBC was seriously overdrawn. And they'd both just been paid, but already there was no money left. The children needed new school shoes and uniforms, and the builders needed paying as well. So, on the 31st of August, Darren applied to borrow £10,000 from the AA, but the loan was rejected. Leanne knew nothing about this failed application, and when the rejection letter arrived in the post, she opened it. Leanne was furious and immediately emailed Darren at work, asking why he was applying to borrow more money. Darren denied making the application, insisting he was telling her the truth and he even pretended that he was worried that somebody had obtained his details fraudulently. 
Clearly still suspicious and perhaps looking to call his bluff, Leanne took it upon herself to phone the loan company before informing them that the application was a case of fraudulent impersonation. She asked them to investigate and confirm their findings in writing. Leanne was never to see that letter, however. When it arrived, Darren managed to intercept it and hid it in his office in the home. On the same day, August 31st, when the application to the AA had been rejected, Darren applied to a company called Fluent Money for a loan of £54,000. This was to be secured against the couple's new home. And he made this application without Leanne's knowledge. But because the house was in joint names, the application had to be made in joint names as well. Darren spoke at length to the broker and in principle the loan was approved, subject to the necessary paperwork being completed and the provision of supporting documentation such as passports and payslips. So behind his wife's back, Darren forged Leanne's signature on the application form and in order to obtain her payslips, he deceived her into providing him with the login details and password for her work computer. So, without her knowledge, he accessed the documents that were needed in support of the application. And in further acts of deception, Darren provided the broker and the loan company with a false email address for Leanne, and also a mobile number for a phone that she no longer used, but which he kept in an office at work. So I'll do what I always do. I'm going to take you to the day of the murder now. It's September the 28th. It's a Thursday and Leanne has just got back from dropping the children off at school. Darren is at work and Leanne is due to work an eight-hour shift beginning at 3pm. When there is a loud knock at the door, Leanne answers. Greeting her on the doorstep is the postman. He has an envelope which he needs a signature for. Leanne signs and returns to the kitchen with the envelope before opening it. Inside are her and Darren's passports, along with a covering letter from Fluent Money, referencing the couple's recent joint loan application. Leanne is furious and immediately texts Darren saying, quote, You liar! Just got back a loan application with my passport and in my name. What the fuck? With no answer forthcoming from her husband, Leanne looks at the search history on her iPhone. It's linked to Darren's and she sees that he's searched for fluent money on the internet. She sends another angry text saying, I asked you and you promised. Fluent money, who are they? Are we in such a mess? Why again? The kids need new clothes and shoes. What's going on? And as I said earlier, when um, I was researching this case, it became apparent that the children needed new school uniforms, new school shoes before the start of a new school year. And that was a month ago that Leanne was having that conversation with Darren. So a month later now, and they still can't afford to furnish the kids with new school uniforms. And I think that's just so tragic. And I really do think in the last month of Leanne's life, it must have just been this horrific financial struggle. You've got Darren desperately applying for all of these loans. Anything that was unsecured, he was getting turned down for. Anything that was secured, he was getting accepted, but he was having to apply fraudulently. And it also takes a long time for the money to come through uh, when it's secured against a property. So this couple must have literally had no money in the preceding month. 
the kids had gone without the uniforms and the shoes and it just breaks my heart really and I think Leanne was just being shut down by Darren at every avenue whenever she was questioning him he was just making denials and it must have been a horrible atmosphere to live in and Darren was also clearly at breaking point now. With no response forthcoming from Darren once again, Leanne repeatedly rings him at work, but frustratingly, he ignores her calls. Leanne doesn't know what to do and she's going out of her mind with worry at this point. When a phone vibrates, she jumps. It's 11.32am now and Darren has just texted to say that he's coming home. Now, we will never know exactly what happened when Darren returned to the family home that day. It is, of course, likely that there was some kind of altercation between the pair and that ultimately ended in the death of Leanne. Based on the evidence of the pathologist who examined Leanne's body, we do know that she was strangled. Significant pressure had been applied to her neck for at least a minute, fracturing two bones in the structures of the throat, as well as causing extensive bruising to her neck. She would have been aware that she was being strangled to death. Damage to Leanne's lips also confirmed that a hand had been placed over her mouth, most likely to stop her from screaming. It's now 12.30pm. Leanne is lying dead on the kitchen floor and Darren is standing over her lifeless body, trying to take in what he has just done. A surveyor is due to arrive at the house at 1.30pm to value the property in connection with Darren's loan application. Darren now has one hour to hide his wife's body. The surveyor will be inspecting the house and could open any cupboard asked to look in the loft. There is literally no hiding place in the house. Darren realises this and immediately heads outside with his wife's car keys. He manoeuvres her red mini clubman, her pride and joy, and reverses the vehicle so its boot is about six inches from the front door of the house. He then drags his wife's limp body from the kitchen before hurling it into the boot of her car in broad daylight. He locks the front door behind him and drives a short distance away within the surrounding housing estate before parking the vehicle on a side street. He then walks back the few hundred yards to the house and composes himself. It's now 1.30pm. The surveyor has arrived to carry out his inspection of the house. Darren tries to act normal and finds it comes surprisingly easy. At 2.30pm, the surveyor has finished and he leaves. Darren now has one hour before he needs to pick up the kids from school. He returns to Leanne's mini and drives into the surrounding countryside, looking for a suitable spot to dispose of his wife's body later on, under the cover of darkness. He drives to Paddock Hill Farm Lane near Mobley. This is an area Darren knows well. It is near the Plough and Flail pub. A pub Darren has visited with Leanne and the children in the past, a pub where he has seen a sign warning of deep water in a wooded location to the rear. Darren slows down as he drives by and then leaves, satisfied that he has found the perfect dumping spot for Leanne's body. He will return later that night, but first he must collect the children from school. Realising he can't pick them up in the mini... The children will question how their mum has got to work if she hasn't gone in her own car. He drives back to the estate near to his house and leaves the car on the side road once again. He returns to the house on foot and grabs the keys to his Audi 
before setting off to collect the children. Darren makes it to the school gates in time. If anything, he's a little early, and as he waits for his three children, he talks and jokes with other parents at the school gates, as if everything is normal. He takes the children to their after-school activities, and then he makes their dinner before putting them to bed at around 7pm. They know their mummy is at work, so to them, everything appears normal. It's now 10.30pm. With all the children in bed asleep, Darren puts his plan into action. Leaving his own phone at home in order to avoid cell site detection, he walks the short distance to where he had parked Leanne's mini earlier, leaving the children home alone. Leanne's body has been crammed into the boot of her car for nine hours now, and it's already starting to show the early signs of decomposition. Darren returns to the area that he identified earlier, near Paddock Hill Farm Lane. His plan is to dump Leanne's body in the deep water in the wooded area, but when he gets out of the car to look at it further, he discovers to his horror that the summer months have reduced the area to an arid landscape. This is no longer a viable option. Hurriedly racing back to the car in the pitch black, Darren doesn't realise at this point, but Leanne's phone has come out of his pocket and it's now left at the site. He was planning on disposing of it along with her body. Darren is panicking now. As a result of his job as an inspector with Greater Manchester Police, he knows that his best option is still to dispose of Leanne's body in deep water. This will cause faster deterioration thus removing his DNA and fingerprints from her neck, in turn hampering any subsequent investigation. He drives around for a while looking for an alternative place to dump Leanne's body, before deciding upon Poynton Park, a 50-acre site popular with dog walkers and bird watchers. A park which has a lake deep enough to hide a body. Parking as close as he can, Darren opens the boot and lifts Leanne's body out before dropping it to the ground. Now, as I said earlier, Leanne's body was in the early stages of decomposition at this point, and it's now started to bleed externally through the mouth and nose. So, as Darren lifts her from the boot, blood splatters from her nose onto his trainers. Initially shocked at the sight of blood, the true horror of his crime coming to the fore, Darren snaps back into action and drags Leanne's body 140 yards along a path until he reaches the water's edge. And he leaves her there, face down, within reach of the shore. Darren returns to Leanne's car and drives it about a mile from the lake before parking up and setting off on the six-mile walk home. At 1.30am, two officers on motor patrol out looking for burglars come across Darren and they stop and speak to him. He assures them that he is on his way home, which he says is close by. He carries on walking the considerable distance home, but when he passes a wheelie bin on a residential street, he is reminded that he must get rid of the blood-soaked trainers. Seizing his opportunity to dispose of them safely, and knowing the rubbish is being collected in just a few hours' time, he discards the trainers in a bin, before carrying on with his journey in just his socks. Unfortunately for Darren, just half an hour later, the same officers who had stopped him just an hour before, now drive past and see him for a second time. This time they are really suspicious. Just what is a man out doing walking the streets at this time? 
Besides, he said he was nearly home when they first spoke to him, and that was an hour ago now. As they pull up alongside him, their suspicion intensifies when they notice his shoeless feet. They ask him what he's doing, and he responds by saying that he's out looking for his wife. He says he thinks she may have been in a car accident, because she is three hours late home from her shift. When the officers ask him why he has opted to walk rather than drive, he says that he has drunk half a bottle of red wine and is therefore over the legal limit. At this point, Darren advises the officers that he is an inspector with Greater Manchester Police, believing this will add weight to his story and alleviate any suspicions that they might have. The officers drive Darren home and come into the house with him. At this point, his son, who, along with his two sisters, has been left alone for four hours, comes downstairs crying, asking where his mummy is and where his daddy has been. Officers at this point notice Darren's cool demeanour towards his son. There's no reassuring hug, instead the child is told to return to bed and to not come downstairs again. Officers are starting to grow more and more suspicious now. Darren's wife is missing and his child is clearly distressed, but Darren maintains a calm demeanour and he doesn't appear to be overly concerned now. Instead, he tells officers that he is sure that she is fine and besides, he's tired and wants to go to bed. They agree to leave and when Darren shuts the door behind them, he immediately undresses and puts all of his clothes into the washing machine before going to bed. Half an hour later and six miles away, a man gets off a bus after a drunken night out in Manchester and wanders towards Point and Lake, having got lost whilst taking a shortcut on his way home. When the man stumbles across Leanne's body, face down in the water, he runs towards the nearby road and flags down a passing motorist, who immediately calls the police. Over the police radio, the grim discovery is relayed to the officers who had just escorted Darren home. They don't know the body is that of Leanne, but the descriptions appear to match, and besides, a body has been found in suspicious circumstances, and they know Darren was in the vicinity that night. So they race round to his house and bang on the door, waking Darren from a deep slumber. When he answers the door, officers hear the loud spinning of a washing machine. They charge past him and stop the machine mid-cycle, before arresting Darren on suspicion of the murder of his wife. Which I have to say at this point does seem to be a bold move to make. They don't know that it's Leanne's body that's been found in the lake. They have no other evidence other than Darren's close proximity to the scene. But I suppose the police can't really win because we berate them when they're slow to act and we question them when they're really quick. So I'm really not having a go at all. I I think they obviously did the right thing in arresting Darren so quickly. It just seems to me that this all happened rather quickly in the early hours of that fateful morning. Anyway, Darren was taken in for questioning, but denied having any knowledge of his wife's death. At this point, they had identified the body as being Leanne. As more and more incriminating evidence was disclosed to Darren's solicitor, he elected to make no comment. He continued to deny he was responsible for Leanne's murder when the case went to court, and he even put in a false defence statement, changing tack from his original account when initially interviewed. He now claimed that Leanne had been at the house when he'd arrived home that day, that they'd argued and that they'd both driven away from the house in Leanne's mini, where he'd left her before making his way home. 
He said that Leanne had not wanted anything to do with the loan application, that she didn't want to be there when the valuer arrived. He said that he had never seen Leanne since and knew nothing of her death. Only when it became painfully obvious during the trial that the prosecution's circumstantial case was overwhelming did he finally ask for the count of manslaughter to be put forward, leaving the jury to consider the sole issue of intent, without the assistance of Darren's evidence from the witness box, on which he knew he would have been relentlessly cross-examined. Despite Darren's attempts to have his conviction changed to manslaughter, He was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment before being told that he would serve a minimum of 19 years. This left three young children without a mother or a father. During the extensive police investigation, detectives uncovered no gambling problem, no extramarital affairs. The background to this case was solely the family's spending and huge debt. At the time of Leanne's murder, the couple were drowning in debts totalling £103,000. They owed £45,000 on credit cards and £17,000 to the building company who were carrying out the renovations on their home. Other debts had been amassed on car finance, various loans and overdrafts, many of which Leanne was not aware of. Every time Leanne had attempted to understand the couple's financial predicament, Darren had assured her that they were fine and so she continued to spend. An economic analyst told the trial that during the previous eight years, the couple had spent around £30,000 on holidays, as well as approximately £70,000 at supermarkets. Which of course sounds like a lot of money, but that's over the space of eight years. Um, But I suppose the point they're trying to make here is that this is a couple who for the last eight years had been really struggling financially. So they perhaps didn't necessarily need to spend £30,000 on holidays or as much money in a supermarket. I don't know. I don't want to sound preachy or judgy, um, but, but that was obviously the point they were trying to make. And to be fair, after their outgoings had been paid, the couple had just £84 a month to cover food and other expenditure. They'd been spending £1,500 per month, more than they'd earned, and it was only a matter of time before this caught up with them. But I do just want to make it clear at this point that I am in no way blaming Leanne for the couple's financial predicament. While she had expensive tastes and had at times been aware of their dire financial straits, she was mostly kept in the dark. Periodically, out of the blue, Darren would tell her to stop spending money and she would. But he lied and hid the truth from her time and again. This is a truly tragic case where one man's pride and obsession with keeping up with the Joneses left three young children without their mother. The judge at Darren's trial accepted Leanne's murder was not premeditated, but he said that Darren had intended to kill her. Furthermore, his work as an inspector for Greater Manchester Police meant he was supposed to be setting an example to the community that he served, and this was deemed to be an aggravating factor in sentencing Darren. So it really is a horrific case and it's one that it's taken us four attempts to uh, relay to you. So I hope you found it interesting. Please do get in touch in all the usual ways. If you wanted to look at the Instagram account that Leanne set up, as I said, it is still active. 
it's Burford underscore home and there's 91 photos there. Um, but it's just really tragic. But equally, I completely understand why they've not taken it down. Leanne was clearly proud of the renovations and the work that she'd done on the house. So, you know, that is the legacy that will live on that great sense of style and taste. It's just such a tragic shame that that came at a horrific cost for her and her family. If you don't currently support the show through Patreon, as I said at the beginning of the episode, please do check us out on there and check us out on all of the social medias. We are on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, so you know where to find us. Next week, we will be back to normal. Beth and we'll be here. We'll be back to the usual banter and hijinks. So until then, we will see you next Wednesday. Bye. <laughs>